Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King, we, we thank you and we praise you for your holy Shabbat. We are gathered here today, Father, in unity, um, kneeling at your feet. Lord, we want to hear from you. Father, we thank you for your word and the gift of your Ruach, um, the indwelling in us that helps us to walk in your ways in the footsteps of your Messiah. Lord, I ask that your words, your message would come through today and that you would guide my lips and my thoughts and that your heart would be what is revealed. Father, we love you and we praise your name. We thank you for your faithfulness and for your Messiah. And we ask all these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. So, when I was researching for this week's Parsha, there were so many things in this section and so many different ideas and directions that I came across that I couldn't pick one thing. And I never really got a feel for one specific direction, which I don't like. Um, so, uh, in lieu of having a very clear picture of where this message might be headed, I decided that really the only thing to do was to have everything in my head and let the Lord kind of direct where it would go, which I also <laughs> am not comfortable with. That scares me, but um, Rabbi David gets up here and, and seems to be able to do that every week. So um, wherever this is going, that's where, that's where we'll head. Um, to open with, this is a brand new Parsha, but it's also a brand new book in Torah. We have started uh, the book of Bamidbar this week. And as I read through this week's Parsha, which is roughly four chapters, I started to realize why it is that Gentiles came along and changed the name of this book to Numbers. Because as you proceed into the book what you see are lists after lists after list of numbers. And for non-Jewish believers or non-Jewish Bible readers, I can see how looking at this section of Torah would seem monotonous and like drudgery. Something that was necessary for operations, but not necessarily all that exciting. And being far removed from who Israel is, that makes sense that that would be some people's view. But as you look closer at the text, you see that that's not what's really going on. God doesn't waste anything in every single letter in Torah, in Scripture, means something. It has an importance. It's there for a reason. So, as I read through the first 
four lists of censuses this week, I started to ask myself, God, why is this here? Why is it recorded in your word, number one? And number two, why did you have Moses do it to begin with? Not just why are we hearing about it, but why did you, why did you feel the need to have Moshe count the people anyway? I mean, we're talking about God here. He knows the total sum and the name of every star in the heavens. He knows how many people are on the entire planet at any given moment, let alone how many he brought out of Egypt and are camping with him in the wilderness, right? So God did not need Moses to calculate the number of the children of Israel. He would have already known. So why did he have him do it? Well, it seems that one of the sages, Rashi, must also have been pondering this exact same thing. Because when I read his commentary on this section, Rashi says that God loves us so much he can't stop counting us. And that just gave me the warmest feeling when I read that. To think of God so fond of and so in love with this chosen people that he has set aside for himself, that he can't stop counting them. This reminds me of the parables in Luke um, that Messiah told of the, the shepherd searching for the lost sheep and the woman with the lost coin. You know, they knew exactly how many they were supposed to have. I've got X amount of sheep and I have X amount of coins. And when even one went missing, they automatically knew something wasn't right, and they went out in search for the one that was lost. Now, Rashi's explanation, which I love, can certainly explain some of the why behind why did God have Moses do it to begin with. But it doesn't explain why we're reading about it now, why God chose to have this recorded in his word um, for all of, you know, following generations. So I, I still had this major question hanging over my head. And as I was trying to get an answer, you know, it was just, Lord, I'm frustrated. I don't understand. Why, why is this important for us to read? And as I was rambling to myself, as I often do, you know, I thought, These are, this is a census of all the men 20 years of age and up. Why? Why 20 years of age and up? Well, the text tells us that those are the men that are old enough to join the original Israeli army. Okay, except for the tribe of Levi. Well, why not the tribe of Levi? What's so special about them? How come they're not included in this 20-year-old and up census? Well, because Levi um, was not supposed to go into the army. Why? Well, because those, um, that specific tribe had been picked to service the Lord in the Mishkan. They'd been dedicated to the service of God in the temple. Well, why? I sound like a kid. I ask myself why when I can't figure something out in Scripture. I just, why? Well, why? Why? How come? Um, so, why was Levi selected? Well, Levi was selected in lieu of the firstborn of the nation. It was originally supposed to be the firstborn that were going to serve in the tabernacle, but, you know, that pesky thing with the golden calf and um, 
you know, idolatry straight out the gate after the exodus. It, it caused God to say, I am choosing the tribe of Levi because Levi, th- those men were the first ones to join Moses in rebuking the sin of the nation with the golden calf. So there's this trade-off. And we read about that in this week's Parsha. Not only are the men 20 years of age and up counted, but the firstborn of all the tribes and the, the lineage of Levi from one month old and up. So all that's counted. There's this exchange for Levites and firstborn and animals and shekels, and there's lots of things going on. But Levi was selected in lieu of the firstborn. So as I look back at the, at the first census of the 20-year-olds and up, I thought, these are the, these are the guys that are going to die in the wilderness. 20 years old and up, two years out of, uh, out of Egypt, uh, Egypt, these are the men that saw the miracles in Egypt. They're not going to make it into the promised land. These are the ones everybody's waiting on to die so that the next generation can cross over. So why, why are you going through this long list of how many there were and you know, how many from each tribe? And I mean, it's very specific. And I just couldn't get a real feel for what this was doing there. Now, sometimes when I'm talking to myself, and I know this happens to y'all too, don't act like I'm crazy. Do you ever hear a voice in your head that sounds like the voice of a character? Like, in a, like if you hear in your mind, I'll be back. It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger is inside your mind and he says, I'll be back. So, you know, when you think of the movie The Exodus, you hear Charlton Heston, who's supposed to be playing a Middle Eastern Jewish man, but has a British accent, (laughs) saying, let my people go, you know? Okay, so as I'm asking these questions, I hear in this voice in my head that something that sounds like like a 70-year-old Jewish man from Brooklyn, or like like Tevi from Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) And so what I hear in my mind is, you know, what? They shouldn't be counted because they're going to die in the wilderness? They don't matter? You know, like somebody that, somebody's old grandpa. You know, that's what I'm hearing, that kind of uh, questioning accusation, you know. And as I thought about that for a minute, I thought, you know, you're absolutely right. Here I am ready to dismiss this whole group of individuals. Let's move on with the story, get past this, because these are the ones that sinned and they're not going to make it into the promised land. But does that mean they don't count? That God doesn't love them and care about them? And then I heard that same sweet little Jewish man ask me inside my head again, would I have been counted if I was measuring by that standard? Probably not. So when I looked at the rest of the text concerning the census, I noticed that there's two separate words for count used in this Parsha. The first word is the Hebrew root word nasah, which means to lift, to enumerate, but to also lift, like to lift the head of, like literally a head count. So to, in order to lift someone's head, that means that they, the head had to have been downcast before. And by counting them, by individually enumerating them, that means they count. 
and you lift the head of them. Now, the word used for counting of the tribe of Levi is a different word, and it means to appoint, but it also means to enumerate. So to count, to tally, but to appoint. <clears throat> so are these two words linked in any way? Are they connected? Can we say that the same concept behind God's counting of Israel and Levi uh, would kind of coincide. Can, can these two ideas mesh together? So when you lift the head of someone, when you make them count, when you make them feel like they matter, that's, that's kind of the same thing that happens when you appoint someone to a very important task. The word used for appointment comes from a root that means um, a very special, precious item, to entrust that item to someone else. So when God appointed the Levites to the service of the tabernacle, he entrusted them with something very precious and um, very valuable to him. Well, when you're entrusted with something very precious and valuable and someone places that kind of faith in you and responsibility in you, then doesn't that make you feel like you count? You matter? So, as I begin to think about this particular group, this men 20 years of age and up, and they've been numbered and God has lifted their head, these are the same ones that aren't going to make it into the promised land. Now, we don't quite know that yet in this week's Parsha, but it's coming. But God, God is no less concerned with their well-being and their growth as he is that next generation coming right behind them that is going to go into the promised land. This season of wilderness wandering that the children of Israel are about to experience, that we're going to be reading about over the next few weeks, this is not a road trip for the sake of the destination. When I go on a road trip with my children, I have one thing on my mind, and that is getting to where we are going and getting these people out of this vehicle. <laughs> and then we can breathe again. I'm not so much concerned with the good time we have on the road. I just want you to be quiet and still, and don't ask me to go to the bathroom 5,000 times. But that's kind of the opposite of what's happening in these wilderness wanderings. You know, I started to, to think to myself, Lord, what is with all the moving around? I can understand, okay, they have to stay in the wilderness for 40 years. That's their punishment. That, that is what it is. I can understand the giving of all the commands about the tabernacle. That's very important to do it exactly this way. I mean, it was a life or death situation. Um, you know, if you made one wrong move or wrong step, then... You know, you might very well, that may be your last. Um, and Moses was, pattern, was, was giving all this instruction based on the pattern of the things in heavens. It was very important to get it just right. All of that I get. But the moving around seemed like such a thorn in my side. Like, I, I don't know if y'all have moved a lot. But that is one of the worst experiences, is packing everything up, going through it, getting it in boxes, living out of those boxes for a certain amount of time while you're waiting to move, 
Then you get everything, you load it up, you got to ask people to help, you got to, you know, it's hot, you're moving stuff, nothing's where it's supposed to be. You finally get it into the new place, then you have to unpack it, get everything back where it goes. You know, it's just, it's a lot. And if you have small children and you have elderly people that, that you're working with too, I mean, it's just exhausting. It's an exhausting task. And so I began to think about the process by which the Israelites had to pack everything up, not just the individual families, because that's a lot too. You got little kids, you got older people, it's sandy, you're in the desert. The desert of Sinai. I'm not talking about South Florida. I'm talking about the desert, people. It's hot. There's no water. It's sandy. You know, a million other different things. But then think about the process that the Levites and the Cohen um, and those families had to go through. Everything had to be done so precisely. Put this, Aaron and, and uh, his family had to go in and cover all the things in, in the holy place. They had to be covered like this, with this, exactly like this, before... They could send the other guys in to pick the stuff up or else they would, they would die. Everything had to be done exactly. Pick it all up. You, you put the poles in. You get it on your shoulders. All the tents are packed up and the 600,000 plus families. The kids are crying. Grandma's griping. You know, donkeys and animals. And off we go. And we walk in the desert, in the sand, in the heat, till we get to the next place that has nothing in it. And then we unpack everything. And then we're there just long enough to get all the boxes unpacked, and now it's time to go. <clears throat> so I was just like, Lord, if there is ever a punishment for me, this is it. <laughs> I can't think of too many more things worse than that. But I realized that I was really looking at it wrong. Um, I was looking at it through my own understanding, my own flesh, God is not perpetually making them move from place to place to place as their punishment. That's not their punishment. You know, who's the guy in, in um, some type of maybe Greek lore that has to push the rock up the hill perpetually forever, and then it rolls back down as soon as he gets it up? Nobody knows what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. So one person's with me, they know. Because this guy, he has to, he, as a punishment, he has to continually push this huge boulder up a hill. And as soon as he gets it to the top, it rolls back down. This is not Israel's perpetual punishment, this moving around. And when you really take a look at it, the events that are recorded in the book of Numbers span 40 years. Now, in that 40-year time, in Scripture, we're given... 42 distinct stops. The majority, over 80% of those, take place in the first year and the last year. So really, there's a very small number of times that we are told of different places they moved to within that 38 years that they were wandering. Okay, so, all right, I, you know, if you do the average on that, we're talking about moving, you know, once every... I don't know, a couple of years. All right, that's not, that doesn't seem as bad. So I thought, well, Lord, if, if all the moving is not like a perpetual punishment, then what's it about? And I have to give credit where credit's due. I was, you know, kind of bouncing this question off of Rabbi David, and he said, well, that's simple in the way that he does, kind of like the older Jewish voice that I heard before. This was a younger one, but it sounded the same. That's simple. 
you got to look at the names of the places they stopped at. That'll tell you why they stopped there. So I thought, man, I hate when he's right. So I got back in the Word, and I started to look at the names of the places that they camped. And sure enough, they each have a meaning that is significant to what they're dealing with at the time that they live there. And a lot of them were probably named by them because of what they dealt with when they lived there. So I started to think, you know, this is a lot like our lives. I don't know about y'all, but I have been, at times, wandering in the wilderness. And I've spent times at other places. You know, if you were to go back and try to chart out the map of my life, first of all, I wouldn't want anyone to see that map, probably, but nonetheless... I think about the different names of cities that I might have in, in my geography. You know, some, some, some time spent at Sin City. <laughs> Not literally Las Vegas, but you know what I mean. Um, there are times that we go through uh, where we're camped out in places of hardship, sickness, um, and, you know, loss, um, disappointment. There are seasons that we go through where we are held fast to stubbornness, disobedience. You know, God is is ready to move. The cloud is lifted off of the the Mishkan, so to speak, and we refuse to go. Now, the word for wilderness is where this Parsha gets its name, which is Bemidbar, which means in the wilderness. The word for wilderness, midbar, comes from the root word, root word, debar, which means word. So, debar, word, wilderness. How does that mingle? I don't understand how the root word for wilderness could be the same word used for the word of God. Or God's, God's words. Anytime he speaks, you know, the devarim, the words is another one of our Parshas. So I started to study into this a little bit further. And the word debar means to set in order. And the, the, the picture of that here is to order your words into a sentence, to speak, to give a word, basically. So that's why that word is used for language or, you know, communicating with someone. So what does that have to do with the wilderness? And as I thought about Israel's time in the wilderness and what Scripture says about future times in the wilderness, I realized that the wilderness is the place that God sets things in order. And it's in the wilderness that he isolates us and we're dependent on him. And there is a certain amount of growth and connection and learning that can only happen during those times in the wilderness. I read a book one time that talked about the Paleo-Hebrew and the ancient letters that they would have used in Moses' time and maybe David's time. And 
basically Hebrew is a language that if you knew what the symbol meant, then you could probably read the sentence just by using it as a pictographic language. So not only does each Hebrew letter have a numerical value, but it also has a concept or idea behind it. So I decided I would try to figure out what the Midbars was. So I started with Devar, which is the word for words, which is also where the name Deborah comes from, Devarah, which also means bees. So the same word for words means bees, which is fascinating because can't our words be as sweet as honey or stinging like bees? Hmm. Okay, so when you look at the word debar, it's dalet, bait, resh. So D-B-R. The dalet is the door. The bait is the second letter of the alphabet, and it is the house, because the word bait, B-E-I-T, literally means the house. Bait lechem, house of bread. See how that works? So the, the B is the house, but it is also representative of the sun. The Aleph, not the big fiery ball in the sky, like the sun, the Messiah. The Aleph is the first letter. It's the head. It's the ox. It's the strong father. The bait is Yeshua, the son. But he is also the house of the father. So, Dalit, door, bait, house, the son. Resh is head, the head, the leader, the supreme. Not like Diana Ross, like the supreme leader is what I meant. So, the word debar gives us the door to the house of the leader is the son. He's the door. He's also the house. He is also the leader. So the word bemidbar, what do you do? Well, you leave the ba off because that just means in the. So you've got midbar. You've got mem, dalit, bait, resh. Well, what is mem? Well, mem is confusing. This took me a little bit to kind of work through. Mem is the letter that represents water because mayim has two mems in it. And whether we're dealing with a mem that's at the first part of a word or a mem at the end of a word, they look different and they mean different things. You got a, a closed mem, which is like a complete box almost, and then an open mem, which is like the, the one you see on the screen here. Now, it means water, but water also represents chaos, like the floodwaters. But, but it's a kind of a purging chaos, a cleansing chaos. So I started to look at Midbar, and I thought, well, okay, are we talking water? Are we talking chaos or destruction? What's going on, Lord? Now, I remembered that Mim, it is water, but it also means the womb, because what's the baby in in the womb is water. Especially a closed mem represents a womb, but, but a regular mem can represent a womb too. And, and think about how Moses, he's called in, in tradition, in Judaism, he's called the one uh, brought out of the water because he was literally saved out of the river. 
So midbar is, remember we said debar is the door, the, the son, the house, and the, the leader, the head. Add womb onto that. What is the wilderness? The wilderness is the womb that leads you to this door of the house of the Father. The wilderness is the incubator for finding that connection to the Father. And that's what's happening on Israel's journey. God is not simply waiting for that first 600 and something thousand people to drop off like flies, and then they'll proceed into the promised land. These people matter to him. And he knows each and every one, and he's numbered them. And he loves them. So each of these 42 stops on their way in the wilderness, the sages say are equivalent to the 42 stages that each person goes through in their lifetime towards their spiritual uh, climb of enlightenment, basically. Now, I don't know what those 42 stops are um, or what the sages say that they are, but this makes sense to me seeing the pattern set in Israel's journey. Now, think about it like this. So we've got the parents. We know they're not going into the land, but that next generation will. I'm always amazed at the, the upcoming generation's inability to learn from the mistakes of the generation before them. Now, until I had children, I never really had anyone look at me and say, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, think about this, those of you that have children. When you would converse with your friends or your other family members and you would say, oh my gosh, listen, I've had this experience. This is what it was. You know, don't touch that iron. It's hot. Uh, I learned that. Don't um, walk behind a horse because you're liable to get kicked. When I would talk to other people before I had kids, my friends believed me. And they would be like, oh, I'm going to write that down. Don't walk behind the horse to get kicked. My friend Elizabeth, she got kicked, I believe her. My children think in their minds, like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> she doesn't know. She walk behind a horse, you're not going to get kicked. You can touch the iron. It's not hot. It's unplugged. I'm baffled by this. But there's something about the inability of the previous generation to learn from their parents' mistakes until they touch that iron for themselves or they walk behind that horse that becomes ingrained in their memory at that point and then they will tell their friends who tell their friends and then one day they'll tell their children who won't believe them either <laughs> so god is not only doing a work within the generation that came out of egypt but by having them accompany the, the parental generation on this journey, he's ingraining that in their own memory. This won't be, my parents told me about the waters of Meribah. My parents told me about what happened in the plains of Moab. Don't fall into idolatry. Why? Because they probably wouldn't have believed them. And even if they did believe them, it wouldn't be enough to keep them from doing the exact same thing. 
But that second generation lived through that wandering. They went through that 40 years. Just like we drag our children through our lessons, don't we? And there were a couple of times, I think about seven times, that Scripture records that the Israelites backtracked to a previous spot that they had already visited. I'm surprised that there's only seven backtracks in 40 years because I have been around some of the same places in my life over and over and over again, not learning my lesson. And for some of those, I have drugged my children right along with me. And I hope that they learn from those things. But even though that second generation had to go through that 40 years, what they also got was that time in the wilderness, which is that incubation period, that, that um, being cradled in the womb. Their every need was met by God in the wilderness. Without that wandering, it may be, listen, I hate sand. I, can't, I hope that's coming through in the contempt in my voice for sand. It may be hot and sandy in the desert, but unless you're there, you don't get to experience the manna. And unless you're camped out in the wilderness, you don't get to see God bring water from the rock. So there's, a, there's this upside-down principle in the kingdom where the things that the world says are wonderful and glamorous and you should seek after, that's the very things the kingdom says you should do the opposite. Go seek after the sandy, hot, desert experience, not the glamorous, air-conditioned, luxury resort. Because that's where the growth is. That's where you're alone with me. That's where I'm, I'm growing you. Now, there's a common thread all throughout the scripture. When you start thinking about what will the future hold, it's really commonly understood in Judaism that the events that are to come are going to be almost identical to the events that have already happened. That's because prophecy in the Hebraic mindset is cyclical. It's not prophecy fulfillment done on to the next one. It's cycles of the same thing over and over, these patterns, this repetition. And the sages know that, that the, the final exodus, the final redemption, will be just like the first one. And the better that they understand the events of the exodus from Egypt, the better they understand what's going to happen in the future. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy is Judaism's revelation. It's Christianity's revelation, too, in case anybody was wondering. That book still applies for us. And a lot of the missing pieces that we haven't figured out yet about end times is because we don't know the book of Deuteronomy. So when you look at what's in store for God's people in the future, you have to go back to that wilderness experience. The sages say there are ten countings of the, of the children of Israel, and they list these countings starting with the census that we see in our Parsha. The tenth counting is yet future, and it's alluded to in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah speaks of a time when, when God will once again take Israel into the wilderness, and they will again pass through the hands of the one that counts them. 
Just like in our Haftarah today, Hosea speaks about that time of future redemption. And think about what you see in the book of Revelation the, in chapter 12, that woman that's, that's uh, about to give birth and the dragon is trying to persecute her. What, what, it, what happens to her? She's given wings of an eagle and she's taken into a place that God has prepared for her for a set amount of time. In the prophets and other places, we're told that God will again take Israel into the wilderness, that he will lure her into the wilderness to persuade her to turn from her idolatry back to him. So there's this lesson in, in this, this, this life application that, you know, no matter how you look at it, you're still going to have to deal with the sand, and that's just, Lord, I need prayer for that. It's hot, it's sandy, it's dry. But there's that experience. There's that closeness. And no matter what city you're currently in, in your walk, or in your life, there's a lesson in that. God is doing something in the midst of what your circumstances are whether you've been around that same city 52 times, whether this is your first trip. Try to go ahead and get the lesson now so you can move on to the next one. But rest assured that God isn't wasting it. He's not punishing you. You're not wandering for the sake of wandering. You're being held in the womb. And God is there to meet every need that you have, no matter what's going on. And I just think that's such a beautiful picture to come out of a Parsha that most people probably don't even think twice about. You just skip through, you know, the names and the genealogies and the numbers. And, you know, there's so much more in this. Um, if you go back and look at the names of all the heads of the tribes listed and what those names mean and the numbers, and how they encamped, and what that would have looked like in their encampment. Of course, we don't have time for all of that. Maybe next year they'll be camping again on Bemidbar, and we'll talk about something else. But the one thing that I, the overarching thing that I came away with from this was God's faithfulness. Whether it's in Egypt, or whether it's crossing the sea, or whether it's at Sinai, you know, not all moments in our lives are these earth-shattering, glorious, Hollywood-esque moments. But they're no less important. And that's where we find intimacy with him. Are, are in, the, in the hard places. So don't don't despair in, in those dusty, dry, seemingly um, innocuous places. That's where God is waiting to show you the water from the rock or to give you the manna. So, Lord, we just thank you for, for your faithfulness, for your faithfulness to Israel then and for your continued faithfulness throughout every generation. Lord, I thank you for each letter in your Torah. 
for each letter in all of Scripture that you have given to us as a map along this journey. Father, we, we pray for the days ahead. We pray for the time when you will again draw Israel out into the wilderness. Father, we pray for the times where you're calling us into that same dry place of, of learning, but of total dependence on you. Father, I ask that you would reveal intimately and deeply to each one of us that we would experience you as our healer, our father, our provider. That you, that you would allow us opportunities to know you in that way. Lord, we ask all these things in the precious name of your Son, our Messiah, Yeshua. Amen.